This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Hey everybody, it's H, and welcome to the 93rd episode of Dune Pod, your one-stop shop to enjoy the new Dune movies. This week, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason. Turns out, the house is dirty as shit. The house is not clean, and she didn't do shit yet. And by prolific magazine editor and writer, Meredith Borders. And it's like, as a Christian, sure, I get that. But as a human being, like, that's so fucked up. We cover the classic 1982 horror film that haunted Jason's nightmares, Poltergeist. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want. A link is in the show notes. And now, without further ado, Poltergeist. Meredith Borders reminded me she is now officially in the Five Timers Club. Wow, get the jacket. It's very, very exciting for me. I, I, I deserve a jacket. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Or later hosen or something. Uh, I'm I'm all set on later hosen actually. <laughs> oh, you're full up. Yeah, I'm full up. Thank you. What what do we have? So we uh, have David Lynchestoon, Lady Hawk, Lady Hawk, War Games, Tron, and Poltergeist. Yeah. Oh my god, what a what a quin what a quintet of fantastic <laughs> movies. I feel like it's like very firmly and like yeah, there is a good theme. We exactly. We're definitely staying in like a. a Four-year chunk, pretty much. So The best four years, though. I agree completely. I mean, seriously, like 82 um, for, for today's movie is like my, I think, probably the best year in film, um, including Blade Runner and Tron. Just the summer of 82, so mm. much came out in this three-month period. It's, yeah, it's insane. Mm. So what have you been up to? What's going on in Europe? How, you know, anything anything going on on the continent? Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't want to speak to the continent because I feel like we're trying to keep things light here. <laughs> but um, here in my house, everything's good. Uh, I've been, I, uh, you know, working on my book and then I'm still editing a lot. I'm um, still editing Fangoria and then I just finished editing an upcoming book about creep show. So that was uh, like a nonfiction mm. uh, book. So that was a, a fun project for me. And then um, I have just been like a making of uh, sort of like a history of from like the first movie through the, sh- the new shutter series. Yeah. So that's what I have been up to. And then just lots of uh, eating of, of breads and cheeses. Um, Cause they have many of those. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so. Love that for you. Thank and you. the drinking of beer, I assume. Yes, and obviously the drinking of beer, which is um, like you know we have to do that in my household. It's it's commiserate. So yes, yeah. How about you, Jason? How's the uh, how's the eating and drinking going on over there? How are you feeling? What's that? What's the I'm latest? okay. I feel okay. I'm like mostly recovered from COVID. Uh, I feel fine. The family definitely escaped COVID. Oh, I didn't know. I'm oh sorry. yeah, no, I had COVID. Uh, we took spring break off, and I got COVID for spring break. Um, and I still had it when we were recording last week. Um, but then shortly after that, the next day I tested negative finally. So I've been negative for like a week now and like slightly snotty, but I'm fine. I'm living life. It's great. (laughs) You sound good. Slightly snotty. What a description. 
Thank you. Yes, I tried not to. I tried not to be. I I huffed a bunch of Afrin before starting this pod so that I love I would Afrin. Sound beautiful for all of, all of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> big fan. Jason, any any special announcements about guests upcoming out of last week? Or <laughs> yes, very excited to announce uh, that a random person I found at Stanford will be leaving a voicemail. No, no, I don't have any. I don't have any. I don't have any um, special guest announcements at this time, but hope springs eternal. You never know. You never know. You never know. Jason was hanging out with uh, POTUS44 last week. so I, mm. I saw that. You know. I, I hope that that didn't overlap with COVID. <laughs> no, it was, on the, it was on the other end of COVID for me. I That's tested good. negative just in time. <laughs> He's already had it, so it, he does, yeah, it's fine. He's fine. It would have been fine. <laughs> I mean, I was going to step in and, and cover for you, right? Yeah, exactly. If I couldn't have made it, I would have been just like, well, please, sir, accept my podcast. My Dune pod co-host. Yeah. We're essentially interchangeable. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll make space for him uh, if he's available, but I do just want to call out tonight's episode. So we're doing Poltergeist, um, mm -hmm. and we're going to get deep into that in just a few minutes. But this is episode ninety. Three and we are on the march to a hundred. Amazing. How's it feel this week, Jay? It feels good. I mean, I I don't know. Like it feels like I, I something's gonna happen and we're not gonna make it. Is honestly, I'm nervous. No. At this point. I feel we're tempting. The countdown part makes me nervous. Mm. <laughs> well, we have some big movies coming up. I just want to just rattle this off for you, just real quick, real quick, in no particular order. We have sneakers. From 1992, you've mm. been dying for that. The Hidden, Dale mm. underscore A, rejoining us. Logan's Run, Highlander, Raising Arizona. Um, a mm -hmm. special episode 97 hasn't been finalized yet. And then, of course, episode 100 itself. Yeah. Can you believe it? It's amazing. Oh, it's a lot. That's a really good run. Really good run. It's some serious bangers. And, uh, and I am quite excited uh, for us to get here. Well, um, how about if we just quickly get into some Dune news? Would you like to know more? Dune, Dune news! <laughs> All right. Jason was very thrilled that it finally became official that Florence Pugh and oh, Austin no. Butler have been cast. Oh. Real good. Speak on it. <laughs> well, Florence Pugh we're fine with. She's great. Obviously. We're very excited about that. I would be furious if you weren't fine with Florence Pugh. <laughs> right. Austin Butler increasingly just looks like uh, the monster from Pan's Labyrinth to me. Like he's just like got these like tiny eyes and this giant face. Uh, and I just don't know. I just don't know why this has happened. And I just don't know. I, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be great. I look forward to recanting all of this slander. Sure. Uh, in, a, in, in some period of time, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't imagine the canonical fade. He was in front of us the whole time. But <laughs> it just and, and like, apparently he's he's going to be amazing in this Elvis movie. People are Looks loving good. the Elvis Looks movie. Good, yeah. 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 He and it like apparently is just captured the soul like Boslerman Lerman was like he had something of Elvis in him. I don't know what that means. Um but he just doesn't look like tiny eyes. Yeah, the tiny eyes, man. Like he just doesn't look like the sort of sex assassin that you need to be <laughs> to be fade. So I yeah. don't know. 
But what does Tom Hanks have in him that is causing him to do the foghorn leghorn voice? And yeah. like, what's going on? <laughs> Way too much fried chicken he's gotten in him. He's just got like, he's, yeah, he's just got like a bunch of grits just coming out of his ears. <laughs> it's just wild. It's just wild. I don't know about that, Boz. It's going to be great. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Well, we will see. Uh, you know, as always in Denis, we trust. Um, so we will we'll hang tight. We there. trust. Um, second piece of Dune news. This is from the always reliable giant freaking robot. Oh, yeah. We have an announcement about the uh, HBO Max TV series Sisterhood of Dune Mind Killer. <laughs> yes. Jay, yeah. what's your what's your take on that? I don't like it when a movie has like double colons in it. Like it's like <laughs> Dune colon sisterhood colon mind killer <laughs> high M dash season one <laughs> part one. Right. They need an don't like lot in there somewhere. I am so glad that you spoke on that as a <laughs> as person, an editor. As an editor, and I used to have to write reviews, and so our review formatting was review colon and then the title, and then if the title had multiple colons. Oh was, yeah. I hated it. Mm, just terrible. But I mean, and we don't know that this is real, but I do like the idea of setting a, a TV show in this period, like setting it in the um, pre Dune book one focused on the sisterhood and their schemifying. I think that's awesome. So that part I support. Yeah, it said, according to this, they're saying the cast is um, almost exclusively female, three women in their late 20s, two others who will play an older part of the group. Otherwise, the cast will include Empress, a brother and sister yeah. tandem in their early 20s, and someone who fits a space pirate archetype. Yeah, space pirate, baby. And then the <laughs> primary villain. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't believe any of this shit, uh, but we're still excited, you know. Yeah. A little, a little titillated, so we shall see what happens. Okay, just... Briefly, can we say hello to some new friends who joined us on the Discord this week? Let's do it. We have Tim O'Thief. Tim O'Thief. Yes, from our Tenet episode. Finally mm -hmm. broke down uh, and joined us. We have Jamoil. Mm -hmm. J-O-M-O-I-O. Jomioil. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Cookie Chef, um, who mm -hmm. is Silly Oswald's wife, who joined us for um, Poltergeist. Amazing. In the Chuckle, in the chuckle Hut. Uh, incredible. And Joel, welcome to you all. It's been, it's been yet another fantastic week on Discord. And if you're listening to this, if you've listened to this podcast uh, for multiple weeks running, you're like, I like this vibe. Uh, you really should join our Discord because it's the purest distillation of the pod. The pod is just advertisement for the Discord. <laughs> mm, exactly. Exactly. Especially after what is about to happen next. All right. Are you guys ready to get into it? Let's do mm -hmm. it. Okay. Here we go. Poltergeist is the fight to keep your family together in the face of unimaginable terror. The Freeling family, Stephen and his beautiful wife, Diane, their high school daughter, Dana, son, Robbie, and young daughter Carol Ann live out an idyllic suburban life in the real estate development Cuesta Verde, where Stephen works. That blissful existence is thrown off balance when unimaginable events begin occurring in the house, and Carol Ann talks to the TV people only she can see. When these otherworldly interlopers move from exploration to assault, Carol Ann is kidnapped into the spirit realm. 
Now the family must rely on each other and outside experts, including the mysterious Tangina Barons, as they fight to bring Carol Ann back to the land of the living. With the very ground shifting beneath their feet, can they hang together and succeed? Or is Carol Ann herself destined to be consumed and transformed into a poltergeist? Meredith, did you choose poltergeist because its name is a German word and now you live in Germany? Is that part of the, the I, I was invited I was invited to do Poltergeist by Matt, but it is oh. actually my favorite horror movie of all time. I have gone on the record. I have like an essay about Sirs? Yeah, I have an essay in the book, my favorite horror movie about Poltergeist. <laughs> so it's like definitely my favorite oh, horror movie of all time. Uh, but it, it it feels very timely that we waited for for this episode until I was in Germany. Uh, because for, for those of you listening at home, poltergeist means noisy ghosts mm. in, in German. So, Yes. Nice. And when did you first see the film? Uh, I first saw poltergeist. Uh, it would have been on TV. Uh, I was probably eight years old. And it's actually very much, you know, gateway horror for me. It's the reason that I love horror movies. I wasn't allowed to watch, you know, anything really. But my parents and older sister had gone to bed and it was on cable huh. and um i i have this really vibrant memory of staying up late and watching it and eating peanut butter straight out of the jar <laughs> <laughs> it was like licking the spoon and putting it back in the jar <laughs> and just being like this is so good <laughs> ah. <laughs> and i just completely fell in love with it and um you know have have loved it ever since mm. jason now is the time for you to break down for us what happened like, yeah where, so where i was the movie touch you I was taken to this movie when I was a child, when it was in theaters. So I must have been six or seven. And I was told that it was a movie about ghosts like Casper the Friendly Ghost. This was by my father, who was not the best father <laughs> in the world. And uh, I had to be taken out of the movie just absolutely screaming. Um, and I, I really don't think I, until last night when I watched it for the pod or two nights ago, like, I don't think I have watched the entirety of the movie front to back since I was a small child. Um, so it was really? interesting. To see. Yeah, I've, I've really not seen it. Do you that. remember which part? Yeah, it was reasonably well into the movie. Like, um, the dancing so meat you said earlier. The dancing meat. The dancing yeah. meat is what did me in and still <laughs> absolutely wrecks me. Like that whole know. sequence of the dancing meat and like the guy clawing off his face is not yeah. something a six year old should see and Ugh. has definitely effed me up. Mm. Uh, just the fact that this movie has a PG rating is. Yeah. It's, it's one of those movies that the sort of rating system completely changed because the fact this movie got a PG rating. <laughs> it obviously should have been PG-13, but that didn't exist at the time. And um, it is one of the movies that, you know, if you look in the trivia of like MPAA, it's like because of Poltergeist and a few others, Gremlins, um, the, all these like Spielberg productions, uh, these movies are the reason that PG-13 exists. Yeah, Spielberg mm. basically was fucking me up like at, at exactly the, this critical time <laughs> because it was like, it was Gremlins, which was also terrifying. It was this movie and like Temple of Doom, basically, that mm -hmm. are like these like psychic scars that mm -hmm. I suffered because PG-13 didn't exist and like parents ostensibly didn't know better. <laughs> um, and like all of this just real gore uh, horror. Uh, and, and like it also really kind of made me not see a lot of like the classic slasher 
movies of the later 80s. Like, I haven't seen most of, like, the Nightmare. I don't think I've ever seen a full Nightmare on Elm Street movie back to front. Mm. I don't think I've seen most of the Friday the 13th movies, except for the very first one, which I saw later in life. Like, I just was sort of like, ah, horror is not for me because of these early experience, because of Steven Spielberg. It's interesting, like, you, you don't generally think about him in that way, but what you're saying absolutely rings true um, for your generation. Uh, you know, for me, six years older, at 12, this shit was, like, injected into my veins. I am ready for this, uh, and I was all the way. Both the, the scary elements of this, the adventure elements of um, Indiana Jones, and then kind of the more whimsical classic Amblin of E.T., which was kind of all happening at, at the same time. Um, so, yeah, this was definitely right on there. Just quickly from a sort of behind the scenes, Spielberg conceived Poltergeist as a horror sequel to his 77 film Close Encounters, um, originally meant to be entitled Night Skies. Um, and he had teamed up with Toby Hooper to work on it, uh, but he didn't want to get into the sci-fi elements. They wanted He wanted to work on a ghost story. Um, and so we have this notion of, you know, this is based on a story by Spielberg. The tree was based on a tree that was outside his uh, window when he was a little kid that he was terrified of. He wrote the screenplay. Um, he did have a, a collaborator on that, but then as a producer, he was also extremely involved. Um, and so there's a bunch of stuff. I just want to get this out of the way. Um, there was a bunch of controversy, um, because he was there so much. And, um, the, I think it was the LA times was on site and they saw that Steven was directing some stuff like second unit, uh, the, the small cars driving around, but then Steven didn't help things by saying, Toby isn't a take charge sort of guy. If a oh, question no. was asked and an answer wasn't immediately forthcoming, I'd jump in and say what we could do. Toby would nod agreement, and that became the process of collaboration. Yeah. Mm, helpful. Steven Spielberg, super <laughs> helpful. <laughs> I'd love to speak on this because I have devoted a ton of time to this question. Great. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, just as this, you know, being one of my favorite movies, and I'm like, what, like, what is the answer? And I think it's really complicated and messy. There are so many different people who were attached to the production who have a different answer to that question. So um, Steven's co-producer, Frank Marshall, is uh, I, and Tangina, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Zelda Rubenstein, who plays Tangina Behrens, are probably the two loudest uh, speakers in the Spielberg camp. And then um, one that I think is interesting is uh, Martin Casella, who plays the investigator Marty, who like claws his face off. He is a Spielberg guy. Like he and Steven Spielberg are really good friends. He was cast in this role because he was Spielberg's assistant on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hmm. He maintains that it was Toby Hooper. Hmm. Um, and so do like many other people. Like um, uh, and the Zelda Rubenstein um, interview that that speaks so you know heavily in favor of. Uh, Spielberg, a lot of other cast members and crew members came out afterwards and were like, I don't really know why she had it out for Toby. He was definitely there. Um, I think it's, a, you know, a lot of different elements. One, I think it was just clearly a, a collaboration, which later Spielberg wrote this open letter in the LA Times saying, you know, clearly the press misunderstands this unique collaboration between the two of us, but, you know, you were definitely the director. Um, I think that he was a more involved producer than uh, is usually the case. And uh, this this is something that I, I heard on a um, another podcast, Project- Projection Booth, 
The author, Chris O'Neill, who wrote a book about Toby Hooper, um, is the one who who kind of said this, and I think it's really smart, but that most uh, of the Spielberg, um, Spielberg produced movies, he's an executive producer. This is one of the only ones where he's an actual producer, which is a more hands-on role. And it's one of the only films that he has a screenplay credit mm-hmm. on. So this was obviously really close to his heart. And so he was he was more heavy-handed in his producer role than he has been on other productions. And then at the same time, this this author who loves Toby Hooper and has been, you know, has written a book about him says himself that Toby Hooper was really introverted and soft-spoken. And and so, you know, he was definitely behind the scenes, like not on the set day of weighing in in a more creative way, but he was like kind of shy day of. And so that's when Spielberg would kind of swoop in and kind of be the louder voice on set. So there's that element that's just sort of complicated and more messy collaboration than is usually the case on most productions. And then there's the marketing element, which I think is really, really key because Spielberg was the hottest shit in the world at this time, you know, like he's coming off of Raiders, he's coming off of Close Encounters, um, it's the same summer as E.T. and MGM, like Spielberg is going to make, like bring a lot more butts and seats than Toby Hooper is. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason it is so messy is because basically the answer is it's both of their movies, like they both kind of directed it a little bit. Um there are parts that feel much darker than than a typical Spielberg movie, and there are parts that feel much sort of warmer than a typical Hooper movie. And I sort of think that's why it rules, you know what I mean? But it does make for, like, not a clear answer to this question. But, I mean, like, above – that's a great – first of all, this is why we have Meredith Borders on the podcast <laughs> is because she knows yeah. things. <laughs> she's not like us who – I guess Matt does research, but she's not just – she's not like me who's just, like, you know, going based <laughs> – Purely on, on like, you know, yeah, like crystal emanations and like, you know, sensory <laughs> psychedelics or whatever. Um, <laughs> which I love, the, which I love. <laughs> but the thing is about the Spielberg Hooper question is that particularly in the first act, all of like the suburban kids playing with cars and bicycles and like disputes between neighbors that feels so late 70s early steven spielberg like just the way it looks like the the overall sort of like you know just like the the focal length like just how distant like the subjects are from the camera like everything about that feels hit the choice of insert shots of like the the cans exploding like all of that feels so steven spielbergy that it's very difficult to imagine that he wasn't you know, making those shots and just making that feel the way it does. Yeah. And I think part of it too is um, there's, there, there's a lot of involvement as well on the back end, right. On the special effects and and other things. And yeah. Apparently he was, he was really involved uh, working with ILM and um, Richard Edland. Uh, well, ILM and, was definitely involved because they put fucking star Wars shit throughout the whole fucking movie. <laughs> like there's like, this is like, the Oh most, my God. Like, yes. Like, <laughs> the the biggest advertisement for Star Wars that's ever been done. Well, and and I mean, spoiler. I remember when I watched Stranger Things season one, and I was pissed because the kids had an alien poster oh, up on the yeah. wall, and I'm like, "There's no way they'd have an alien poster on the wall," and they had a fucking alien poster right, here. Right, Robbie. Right. Damn, talk about being scarred. Jerry Goldsmith is the com- is the composer here, and he's oh, yeah. also the composer on Alien. Mm-hmm. So I think that was like just a little like shout out to him. But I, I think to your ILM point, and also um, it, it's Spielberg's editor. You know, mm. it's uh, Matthew. No, what's his name? Uh, Michael Kahn. Mm-hmm. And so I think like the post production stuff is firmly Spielberg. You know, um, and then the the story and and the actual like on set filmmaking is is a collaboration. Mm. 
the the other person I just want to call out who this was her first uh, real credit um, as associate producer is Kathleen Kennedy. Um, mm -hmm. So she started out as John Milius's assistant, the great John Milius, director of Conan, uh, among other things. Um, but he was an EP on 1941 and Spielberg met her and then hired her and said this about her. She was horrible at taking notes, but what she did know how to do was interrupt somebody in mid-sentence. We'd be pitching ideas back and forth, and Kathy, who was supposed to be writing those ideas down, suddenly put her pencil down and would say something like, and what if he didn't get the girl, but instead got the dog? <laughs> so she was good at giving notes, but less good at taking notes. That's that's fair. That's fair for her. But that is incredible to like for her to be in those situations with some of the most powerful filmmakers in the world and to be able to assert herself um, successfully and uh, really effectively is mind-blowing. And Kathy Kennedy is a legend. She is a legend. Yeah, she's mm. great. Good for Kathy yeah, Kennedy. that's why she has the job she has now. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that was quite, <laughs> I thought that was quite cool. All right, well, so shall we go ahead and get into this film? Let's do it. So starting with the national anthem, uh, you know, how does that hit you, Meredith, every time you put it on? Uh, well, I mean, it's just, it's so unsubtle, the sort of like American dream narrative behind this, this movie. It's like right off the bat. It's like, this is about, <laughs> you know, like just like chasing your dreams and capitalism and suburbia. I feel like uh, it's it starts really strong on that tone immediately. Mm. Also, the font for Poltergeist is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good font choice. Like, I like this dark saber font they went with for like Toby Hooper's name. It looks mm. awesome. Mm. And yeah. Jason, how about the idea of TV turning off at night? Yeah, I was. That was like one of those. That was like one of those. Like, uh, I am an old person because I remember. You remember when that? The oh, yeah. I remember when uh -huh. the TV turned off at night for Same. sure. Yeah. I don't know when that stopped happening, but like old. I mean, like. It was long enough that I was able to stay up until that late hour and the TV mm -hmm. would definitely turn off with like some whole, you know, good evening from local affiliate, local ABC affiliate. And we'll see you again in six hours. Yeah. Right. Right. But just the close up of the cells of the TV and, uh, you know, through the end of that and, and then the static um, was so freaking good. Um, and then Carol Ann is just, you know, as the dog walks around and then Carol Ann wakes up and comes down uh, to check out the TV. So her, she's getting right into it. Answering questions that we can't hear is immediately so fucking creepy. Mm. It's so creepy. And I also want to just talk about the Ebas sort of introduction, because I think that is just a brilliant way to introduce you to this family in like five seconds. Please. He goes from room to room. You see the sort of configuration of the siblings. And then, you know, you, it just feels like before anyone says a single word, you understand who this family is and like kind of their vibe through Ebas's kind of tour throughout the house. Ugh, I think it's so good. It's like really good storytelling. Mm. It's a totally. weird dog name to like be like Ebuzz, like e like a first initial only <laughs> dog name. It is based on the Dan Aykroyd SNL character Ebuzz Miller. He was a film uh, critic. So that's, all that's right. Where that comes okay. From. Great. Wow. Wow. Meredith ringing. Borders. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, well, uh, we're gonna have to go ahead and get right into this uh, right off the bat because as soon as uh, Joe Beth walks downstairs. <laughs> Hair wise. Hair, 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 hair wise. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I'm so glad that you bring this up because 
instantly on this rewatch, I was like, God damn, her hair is good. Like the entire right? movie. So, so good. And her hair actually becomes a plot point mm-hmm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like an important narrative progression. Her hair gets like, you know, Bride of Frankenstein-y, the more like fucked up shit that she lives through. Uh-huh. Hair-wise, this movie is so, so good. <laughs> Five banger hair-wise, for sure. A plus. Absolutely. Well, um, so then we kind of get into, um, you know, this kind of like developing story portion. We have this whole thing with the game. The guys are watching the football game and the neighbors going back and forth, battling, um, you know, with their, their remote controls or turning each other's TVs off. And the one question I had about this was when Mr. Rogers comes on screen, one of the guys watching the game goes, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> yeah. Is this somebody who doesn't know who Mr. Rogers is? What is happening? Yeah, ex- well, he's old, so he, he doesn't, doesn't have kids, kids and so like yeah, yeah, it's it's only 1983. <laughs> Mr. Rogers, you know, it was like is, okay, he did he wasn't up on the pop culture. He just wants to watch his he just wants to watch his football game. He doesn't care. I, I was just gonna say I always love this because uh, a like to Jason's point, it's very kind of 70s Spielberg. So, you know, the overlapping conversations, the like warm suburbia and all that. But B, it, it also offers a sort of prosaic reason that the TV could be messing up. So mm-hmm. it kind of keeps you on your toes in terms of like what's going on at first. It's like, oh, it, it could be all of this weirdness that we've seen so far with Carol Ann and everything. Maybe it has something to do with the shared remote. And it's just that's a red herring completely. But I, I think it's clever. Yeah, I had that same thought. Um, and uh, to me, it's like that that first level and then the second piece of just sort of like, what is it to be in suburban battle with your neighbors? And what does that what's that look like? The the thing that I wanted to call out about the suburban battle with your neighbors was the um, the remote that they're using <laughs> yeah. between the two. Um, so if, if I believe if I if I if my eyes don't deceive me, I believe this is a Zenith space commander. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> a module, which was like an early remote that my grandparents also had. Uh-huh. And the thing that's notable about this remote was that it worked with ultrasonic frequencies. Yeah, it was a little, you press the button what? and a little hammer would strike an aluminum rod and the aluminum rod would vibrate at a frequency that you can't hear, but that the TV can hear. And that's like how it would, that's like how it would tell it to change channels. Um, instead of using like infrared or RF or other technologies that didn't exist then, um, it was an amazing little piece of like tech that didn't obviously survive. But um, I call you out, Zenith Space Commander. <laughs> it changes sound levels. It even turns your TV off or on without wires or batteries. My God, just the clicking sounds um, definitely resonated through my through my oh. childhood. Mm-hmm. So Tweety also dies, and there's a little bit going on um, with that, getting getting buried. I think Tweety is one of the most important parts of the movie for a couple of reasons. A, he's like truly the canary in the coal mine because um, his sort of burial and then subsequent uh, sort of being brought up from the ground mm-hmm. foreshadows everything else that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but B, I think that it's really interesting because it illustrates – Carol Ann is this really empathetic and possibly like psychically in tune child. I mean, that scene where she's like, for when he's hungry with the Twizzler and for when it's nighttime with the Polaroid and 
um, you know, when he's lonely and then she puts the the little uh, napkin. Mm-hmm. I just think that it's um, really special. It illustrates a lot about the child. It's an amazing performance right out, out of the gate by Heather O'Rourke. And then also kind of hints to the fact that she already does have a way of communing with the dead, which I think is just like, again, such good storytelling coming here because we've got in this one little scene, just cuteness and charm. We've got character foreshadowing. We've got plot foreshadowing. And we have a sort of question of, um, whether or not like what's happening is prosaic or like you know psychically like heightened. I love that. I love it. That's great. Mm. That's very beautiful. effective. That is a good call. I, I definitely noticed that as well when when the Tweety box gets dumped out uh, when they're digging the pool. Um, smart, uh, smart connection. So the so we get now to the storm, um, and I like count and still associate counting lightning and thunder with with this movie with this film. I 100% me too, do. Me too. <laughs> yeah, I it it I think it made thunderstorms scarier than they had to be just because <laughs> I so for me I associated that this was where it came from. It was like, "Oh yeah, you count so that the tree doesn't fucking kill you at some point." Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about so so we have now while they're uh, kind of getting scared on the storm, you have Diane and Steve smoking reefer in the bedroom. Yeah. Um, so first of all, was Craig T. Nelson, the OG dad bod. Yes. She says, honey, it's right to the Nautilus machine. And he says, look at this. Before, after. Yes. Before, after. He was the OG dad bod. I felt there was like sort of like, I was like, wow, did Stanley Kubrick rip this off for Eyes Wide Shut where Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman get stoned? (laughs) Totally. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like after putting the kid to bed, parents getting stoned in the bedroom, like sort of frisky times, like, you know, between middle-aged uh, upper middle class family, uh, Stanley Kubrick stealing from beyond the grave <laughs> from his collaborator, from guys. Future co- Borrow, this was- borrowing. Spielberg did it right back many times. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, oh, I just really love the intimacy between the two of them. Um, so I thought they portrayed that very well. And the fact they're reinforcing that they're actually really young. Um, yeah. You know, uh, they're still a young couple, even though they have a 16 year old, a 16 year old daughter. This this scene, I think, was like like the Tweety Bird burial scene that Meredith called out. I think these were two really good kind of character building scenes. I sort of wish there was a bit more of that, like as Mm. the movie went on, because like I, I, I just felt like that was this was like the last time you sort of got like stuff about the character that wasn't just their in peril from ghosts. Um, and you know, I just I wish there was a bit more of that, but it's really well done in this moment. I think there is one more scene that I'll I'll call out when we get to that I, I think has the same sort of like character building magic. Mm. But um, you know, I I also rewatched the sequels this week. Just you know, I, I don't know, I like them. Uh, they're not nearly uh. as good, but I will say in per- Poltergeist to the other side, there is a, another scene between um, Diane and and Stephen that I think is like really good at recapturing this magic. I mean, I think these actors have like amazing sort of warm, natural chemistry between the two of them. Absolutely. And while there's a lot of the warmth from this film missing in two and three, uh, they these two characters together in Poltergeist 2 still recapture it. Yeah. Mm. And he's reading a Reagan biography, which, uh, you know, more of the sort of political. Theater. That's weird, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, <laughs> that was weird. I think it's more too of a the sort of like, capitalism like american dream kind of stuff right but watching it through like a modern lens it's like uh no he's way too cool to be reading a reagan biography (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so, so now we have the introduction of the clown. Um, and so Robbie seeing the clown down at the bottom and he pretends to shoot it with a finger gun and just the reaction of the clown and the lightning and stuff is, is definitely scary. Does that get you, Jason? Yes. And also psychologically, Meredith, why are clowns scary? Well, this is a particularly freaky ass clown. Like this is the worst looking clown they could have ever given a child. We, my sister and I did have two um, sort of velvet uh, iridescent clown, frame clown paintings in our childhood room that we hated. Mm. So, and that was before, it was before I saw Poltergeist. So I think that it is kind of a universal thing. It's that like just, you know, it's the Joker. You're like, you're never smiling, but their eyes are dead or you're never not smiling, but their eyes are <laughs> right? dead. You know, you don't know what's going on back there. <laughs> Well, so Robbie's counting lightning and I love this smash cut to all the kids are in the bed and they're all kind of like jammed in there. That's a really mm -hmm. cool cut. Very smart cut. Mm -hmm. Really smart cut. And then the pan, the slow pan back from the TV and then, or sorry, from the bed and then up and over to the TV is a really cool and kind of somewhat aggressive shot. But this is where we really have the beginning of some of the strobe light work, um, which in this film, the strobe light work is mm -hmm. extremely strong. Oh, so good. So the only thing that I struggled with from a visual effects standpoint in this film is this scene, which was the spectral ghost hand coming out of the TV. It's very kind of, Ghostbusters-y. It's very... Mm -hmm. it's, I thought it's, Disney, like... Oh, um, yeah. But Richard, Ed, Richard Edlund, who did Ghostbusters, so it makes sense that uh, that, that piece um, has that connection. Yeah, it really looks like... It looks like the effect... At the beginning, like the first ghost in the library effect totally. in uh, in Ghostbusters, or like the or the ghost fl fleeing the containment unit. It's just got that like weird kind of like gauzy light stuff that doesn't age super great, but like it's kind of fun as like it feels like vintagey in a way. Mm -hmm. It's like sort of listening to an LP of special effects. <laughs> But when Carol Ann gets to the TV and turns around and says, They're here. Holy shit. That's yeah. 100%. Yeah. Oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that, one, that works. <laughs> All right. So now we got a smash cut and just talk about Joe Beth and Jean Shorts. Um, yeah. I mean, she is stunning in this film. She is really good. Yeah, she looks great. She's amazing. And her, yeah, I mean, not just her looks, also her presence is just really phenomenal. I, I really think that Jo Beth Williams is like 100% the reason this movie works. I mean, there are a lot of things that are fantastic about it, but I think that uh, ultimately the the movie kind of comes down to this sort of story of like, I don't know, like feminine, like compassion with like the parapsychologist and Carol Ann with Tweety, but um, Jo Beth is like, the heart of all of that. She's just so, I mean, she's hot as hell, but she's also just so like warm and engaging. And, you know, even like when she finds Tweety and she's funny, she's so funny. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Like in the pot scene or when she finds Tweety, she's like, shit, you couldn't wait <laughs> yeah. for a school day. You know, every single line, every, like the way she handles everything is so good and believable and real and like textured. Oh man, she's phenomenal in this. And she played, she just to tie it back to last week's episode, she played uh, Bessie Earp in in Wyatt, in the Kevin Costner or Wyatt Earp. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Huh. That deep okay. Earp, as we rotate to be Earp pod, <laughs> we, we, I don't think the Joe Beth Williams of opens up. Tombstone is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So I'm yeah. so, I'm so glad that you guys said that because I, I love Tombstone so much. Yeah. Really fun. Um, so as a young woman, how, how did you take uh, Dana flipping off the construction workers? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I love Dana so much. And, you know, obviously we can get maybe in after to the whole, like, you know, curse of poltergeist mm-hmm. thing. But um, I think that she's, you know, I, I was just talking about the sort of, like, feminine warmth and compassion of this movie that I think is really strong. And I love that Dana has no part of it. Right. Yeah. right. It's, like, really, like, kind of snarky a-hole. Yeah. I love her. Um, and I also really love... Uh, Diane watching from the kitchen while these construction workers that she obviously knows because she kind of laughs when one of them's like drinking her coffee and like tasting her pasta sauce or whatever. So, Bluto. Like, you know, yeah, Bluto, exactly. <laughs> um, but so she's not like fearing that, you know, her daughter's in danger or whatever, but she also just knows that Dana can take care of herself. And <laughs> in a, in a, so she's just laughs kind of mm. watching Dana like give it to them. I, I love that scene. I think it's really good. That is awesome. How about, uh, so So now we have, things are about to kick into higher gear here. And so Diane sees that the chairs are pushed out and she's kind of complaining about that. And, and then she goes to get some sugar and she turns around and the chairs are all stacked up. <laughs> so this was a practical one shot with people scrambling um, to stack up oh. all the chairs and, and get it done perfectly. But it's just oh. amazing and freaky. The chairs, uh, the ones that are on top of the table, were a single, like, one-piece pyramid that was already placed together. And so they, like, moved the chairs that were around the table really quickly and then just placed that one piece on top of the table. Oh, that's smart. I, I didn't even – it's funny because, like, I didn't even register that, like, it w- must have been – like there must have been a bunch of people furiously scrambling to fuck with chairs because like I was like, oh, like, you know, you can fucking chairs. You can do anything nowadays. But yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <All right. laughs> exactly. That's funny. Well, so now we have, uh, you know, um, so Stephen comes home and there's this real excitement. Right. So um, Diane is kind of caught up in this. And so she shows him the chair that slides and she shows Carol Ann sliding her across the floor which this reminded me of the invisible car guy. You've seen this guy on TikTok? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where he has a little he has a little green screened out like scooter. Yeah. Oh, is that how he does it? Yeah. Yeah, he keys out the he keys out the little like roller pad thing that he sits on. Oh, I thought it was magic. I mean, it is magic. <laughs> Okay, go ahead, Meredith. You got you have a point on this one. Oh, um, I just well, I think the scene is is really great, and it's another like Jo Beth performance where she's just like, and, and sort of unlike other haunted house movies that came before or after, where first of all, I think the part in most haunted house movies where the family is like disbelieving is mm. really tedious. Like, I hate the sort of thirty minutes or so that most of these movies take to like convince the family something supernatural is happening. That's that's a drag for me. I don't, I don't want it. And two, I love that at first they just are reacting with like joy and wonder rather than, you know, dread or, or horror. They're just like, holy shit, look at this. Um, and then there's also a really weird smash cut that we can talk about. if you Let's guys do it. Yeah, I'm ready. It is the weirdest cut. It's like so aggressive. <laughs> so so Joe Beth is just giving it her fucking all with like, it's like there's a tickling inside of you and, and, and the tickling, it pulls you, the, the tickling pulls you and it's like, oh, it's so good. And then all of a sudden they're on their neighbor's porch and it's so, it's kind of messy and ugly and it's like really the only like bad edit that like in this movie and maybe that Michael Kahn has ever done. But apparently it's that uh, uh, Stephen Freeling has a line about how he hates Pizza Hut because earlier they were talking about how they were going to get Pizza Hut and Pizza Hut objected to the line. So they uh, just messily cut it out at the very last second. Amazing. Oh, wow. I wow. love that smash cut though. I think it's a good vibe. Like it's sort of just a, like it's a fun little bit of filmmaking. That's amazing. See? 
Constraint it, inspires creativity. It sort of feels like she just goes on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it feels like she's just talking about this feeling forever and they don't want to show mm. it. And so then they just cut to the neighbor's <laughs> thing. But it was actually, yeah, like you said, it was it was a constraint. But know? but so so their reaction is so good because they are on this really high, and then they're trying to share that and explain it to the neighbor. But so we gotta just pause for a second on Ben. So as they're you know, they're getting eaten up by mosquitoes outside, which I guess is inferring some amount of supernatural stuff. But his delivery on... Mosquitoes. Yeah. I've never been bothered by them. Huh. In fact, I don't think I've ever been bitten by one of them. As far as I know, nobody in my family's ever been affected by them. This neighbor is such a pain yeah. in the ass. Like, totally. what a weird thing to argue about. <laughs> but her saying, uh, Mr. Tudhill, and then he says, Ben, and just... The way he's laughing and stuff, that shit is hilarious. Yeah, yeah that is really funny. This is when mm. the movie's still kind of like uh, lighthearted and zany. Like maybe the ghosts are fun. Maybe it's like E.T. Mm -hmm. For 90 more seconds, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, so now we get around to Storm 2. And so my first question, if this is Cuesta Verde, uh, which is in, I think they shot this in Simi Valley, um, California. Like when does it, was this just the 80s? There were more storms and rain no. happening no i mean it's the it's the poltergeist it's the spirits <laughs> okay all right yeah fair enough it's, it's indicative <laughs> of how far how how things are off is that the storms are coming for simi valley okay. another ronald reagan reference apparently this movie was deep in on reagan <laughs> what was that one well simi valley is where the reagan library is Oh, nice, nice. Well, so the counting here is amazing. Robbie as the thunder and lightning are getting closer and closer. And then the tree attacking. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. The closet opening and the whispering mm -hmm. happening. Like this whole scene is just freaking amazing. Yeah, I think. So it is so epic. It's so huge. Mm. It raises the question for me of like, did I have to be taken out of the theater now or during the meat thing? Because I think maybe <laughs> I did. I think maybe I ran screaming now and then came back in. And then it, the meat thing was the curtains for like, that was like, the, oh, I'm not coming. I'm not going back in again. <laughs> Robbie being eaten by the tree, which they shot backwards. Um, but that was incredible and horrifying like he is very close to being got yeah he gets, almost gets eaten by a tree poor robbie and i think you know the the remake which is it's not for me but they sort of go um more heavy-handed on the fact that robbie's like a kid with anxiety but i think mm. you know the original like in a subtle way already kind of illustrates that but this is like the scariest thing that happens in the movie in my opinion, mm. like there's their grosser parts and like more kind of straight up horrifying parts. But the part that actually scares me the most to this day is the scene. And it's so smart because everyone is so distracted by this thing that's happening to Robbie that they're able to just like lift Carol Ann off without anyone even noticing for like, you know, 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. mm. Really, really good. And you get a nice little Wizard of Oz homage um, in there. Um, uh -huh. but the scene of them just running through the house, looking for Carol Ann, finding the doll in the closet and like Robbie's scream is legendary to me. I was just saying this to my husband that like when he's 
like sitting in front of that TV and, he, and they're still looking for Carol Ann and he realizes she's in the TV and his screen kind of escalates where he's just like, mom, mom, mom. And then it just gets so like shrill and intense. It's like such a good performance. Like that is how kids react, you know, like he's a little bit frozen at first and then it just builds to this insane intensity. Really good. So we cut from there, um, you know, there's a tonal shift now um, from that horror moment to these experts, uh, Dr. Lesh, Ryan, and Marty, um, uh, who I, Marty to me, who you were referencing earlier, Casella, uh, I thought, I thought of him as poor man's Killian Murphy. Or- That's what I, I had the same note. <laughs> I had time travel Killian Murphy. <laughs> but less good looking. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, in the vibe, but so there's a couple the, shots where he's like not in full light. Where I was like, "It's time, Trevor Killian Murphy." Killian Murphy <laughs> went back to 1983. Is in this movie? <laughs> Shit is wild. Uh, but they're like, they're like so excited about you know they've captured a car moving six inches or whatever. Um, <laughs> and all of the re- what they do to me so effectively here is the reactions of Steven and Diane. They're so calm. They're yeah. so used to all of the stuff that's happening. It's like no big deal to them. And that was like super effective. Yeah. This is so good because um, I listened to an interview with Martin Casella on um, I Was There Too. And that's where I like heard the part where he was kind of like saying that Toby Hooper, mm-hmm. you know, was the director. But he also talked about how that scene was originally written with like a whole bunch of sort of like psycho tech babble mm. of, of like, you know, the science that they did ar- around this car traveling yeah. like six feet. And the actors just could not yeah. – articulate it and they went through like seven huh. takes and and Spielberg was just getting so fed up and so finally he was like okay just like give me the night and I'll rewrite it and then he rewrites to this like really funny effective scene where and like I mean I just think Craig T. Nelson's face is so good there he's just uh-huh. like okay sure and then he just opens the door and walks <laughs> yeah. away uh, the way he just walks away he doesn't even look back Ugh, I love it so good oh my gosh and Hulk like riding a horse flying around uh, is pretty awesome yeah um, so now we have, to me, this is the first time that I sobbed in this film. Oh, no. So Diane calling to Carol Ann and kind of like just her reaction and her performance. Absolutely. When, you know, it's mommy. We're home, baby. We're home. Can you find me? Can you find a way home to us? Mommy, I can't So intense. Um, and then when she moves, when Carol Ann moves through her, her reaction there, um, is just really powerful. It's really, really beautiful. Yeah. The the stuff where she's like, I can smell her. Like I can smell, I can smell her on me. Like really is like, you know, I don't know. Like, like that is one of those, like, as we've talked about in other episodes, like the, you know, oh, like you've got kids and you haven't seen it, like, you know, whatever. It's just like you, you kind of, it messes with you in a different way or, or, you know, I, I definitely don't even remember any of that stuff from the movie when I ran, ran screaming from it as a (laughs) six-year-old. Dana is losing it. Like I love, she's just standing there, like, uh, almost pulling her hair out or something. Like she is really, she's in tough spot. I think that's also a really good mom moment with um, with Diane where where Dana's like, I got to go. I can't be in this house anymore. And she said, baby, you go and just hugs her. Mm-hmm. Like, And there's just so many like even smaller moments. Like the one you just referenced is like one of, I think, the most important Diane moments in the, in the whole film. But there's so many smaller moments where she's just being a great mom like throughout. There's not a single second when she's not there and present and caring, but without being like you know, like a, whatever, helicopter, like, you know, right. she's, she's very cool and has her own personality, but she is a fantastic mother. Yeah. Right. 
Amazing. Um, so the movie really slows down now for a while. Um, and you have this whole long scene with Dr. Lesh and Dana and Robbie talking that, that is a really sweet, uh, yeah. sweet moment there. Um, and especially Robbie, I think is, is really great in this scene. Uh, that's the scene I was referencing earlier when I said, I think there's one more scene that's just like straight mm, character yep. work and no kind of like, there's no duress. It feels like this, like sort of eye of the storm kind of like break between battles where they're just, you know, they're sharing the flask. And I think Dr. Lush is, is really great too. I, I love Beatrice Strait in this role. And I think her relationship and her dynamic with Diane is, is really good. And um, it's kind of like a underrated part of the film, but um, they're just kind of sharing war stories. And then Robbie, he's such a like real little kid, the way he like starts whispering and then he gets a little bit louder because he gets too excited and his mom has to shush him again. Like all of that just rings so like true and good for me in a way that makes like the more heightened stuff that comes right before and right after land a little bit harder. Beautiful. So now at 3 a.m., Killian decides it's a good time to have a steak. Yeah, that's weird. Like that's weird. <laughs> like if you're so weird. If you're like staying, you're doing paranormal investigations at someone's house. You don't just go into their fridge at three in the morning. Like, first of all, if you do, you like take a yogurt cup or something like you take like, you know, like a piece of fruit, like or you let a, maybe, maybe like a piece of leftover pizza, like a cold piece of pizza or something like that to just be like, I'm going to pan fry a steak right now. Like this is like a 16 ounce T-bone he pulls out of the fridge. Like, abs like that's someone's that's a major piece of someone's groceries. You can't just take that out and claim it as your own. That's wild. That hey, you know what wild. interest rates were at that point? It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful. It's disrespectful. Yeah. So disrespectful. Yeah. Also, also, you don't lay a steak, a naked steak on the counter. Use a plate, no. please. It's so weird. Ugh. He's so weird. The ghosts, Great the ghosts were right to go after him. He had he, it coming. He deserved what he got. <laughs> So great. The sound of the dancing meat uh, and then him tearing his face off. Um, famously, they only had one shot at this mask uh, that they were tearing. So it is Steven Spielberg's hands um, who is clawing away uh, oh. at the mask. And just the visceral nature of the goo hitting the sink. It's so effective uh, and just absolutely awesome. I don't love it. Have you guys seen the behind the scenes photo of of Spielberg Spielberg's hands like no. tearing the face off? No. He looks so happy. <laughs> He's like oh, God. Ah. shit kind of like just oh, so yeah. gleeful. He's having the time of his life. It, it's pretty cute. Uh, but Martin Casella says that he actually asked Spielberg to do it because he kept being told how expensive the model was. Oh. And he was like, I kind of don't want to mess with that. So can you do it? So mm. that was uh, the reason that played out that way. But I love that scene. I think it's like, I mean, it's, it's obviously, and I think this is uh, Lynn's credence to the Spielberg um, auteur kind of theory, yep. but it's very similar to the scene with the melting face in, in Raiders, obviously. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just ILM kind of doing a, a similar effect, but I do love that effect in both movies. I think it's really, really cool and, and you know, it's, it's kind of got me onto the path of like loving gore. In, in to films. me, the connection was Terminator. Oh, yeah. Right when when he's doing the surgery on the mm. eyeball like that that was a, a similar kind of like model oh model yeah big time. the the purple goo like sort of the purple jello that like is both uh, comes out of the steak and comes out of his face balls. and then later comes on the tennis balls I don't love it don't love the purple jello love it vibe love it I'm into it's, it placenta. yeah it's gross it's don't love it. <laughs> yeah. 
It hit both of you viscerally. Um, well, so also we had the ghosts come down and they're captured on tape. So they're able to see, you know, a little bit more about, about what's going on there. Um, but so now Jason, I love this. The next day, um, Steven's boss shows up uh-huh. and, you know, he's just wants to yeah. know why Steven is not at work. Um, and why Carol Ann is not at work. Like they're apparently tracking their workers and their workers, kids and their, their attendance habits. Oh, yeah. Um, but Jason, Stephen has done $70 million in sales with the good leads, the Quest of Verde leads. That's fucking wild. The Quest of Verde leads are amazing. He is always closing those Quest of Verde leads. 42%. Yeah. 42% he sold. 42% of their sales. That's like 200 what? units. That's insane. One man. One man is like doing, like what is, whatever that is, it's like, you know, $30 million worth of sales or something like that. What did he get out of it? Like, what is his commission? Is it like, Nothing because it doesn't seem like he's set like that. They're broke by Poltergeist 2. Like, you know, they're completely broke in mm. Poltergeist 2. So it was not enough to set him up for life. That's for sure. sad. I think things have changed significantly uh, from one to two, but, um, you know, that nest egg of the house is <laughs> went up in smoke. Uh, right. But yeah, I love that. And, and kind of the, the setup now, it's not like an ancient tribal burial ground. We've done this before. Um, so kind of really letting you know, um, what is going on. And I had forgotten that it wasn't tribal and that it was just a regular, uh, burial. Yeah. That was, that was a, that was a red herring. The tribal was a red herring, but the graveyard part was real. It gets a little muddied because of Poltergeist too, where Will Sampson plays the shaman who like comes in and and helps them at like Tangina's request. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of people confuse those plot lines where it's like, oh, it's an Indian burial ground. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, those are two different. That's right. Two different storylines. That's right. Well, so speaking of she's here, it's time for Tangina Barons. So this opening line of dialogue. You don't mind hanging back. You're jamming my frequencies. You're jamming my frequencies. You're jamming my frequencies. Oh my God. What a peach. Such, such a good entrance. I mean, she just marches right into that household and tells everyone what to do. What's going on. Immediately. Yeah. I just like, yeah, tweeted this, this gift the other day, but when she like tells Diane like, Will you do everything I say, even if it runs contrary to your beliefs as a human being and a Christian? (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, as a Christian, sure, I get that. But as a human being, like, that's so (laughs) fucked up. (laughs) She's amazing. I love her so much. Such, such gravitas. And I think this is a part of the film that could get silly. And the fact that it doesn't is really impressive. Like, it's still, I mean, it's like very serious (laughs) when she arrives. Yeah. And so she was a, um, she went to USC um, and trained as an actress, mm-hmm. um, which is amazing. And uh, Zelda Rubenstein. Um, and just her performance, the sunglasses, the just uh, little motions that she makes, her engagement with Diane is absolutely incredible. Um, and I, for me, when I saw her again in 16 Candles as the organ player, mm-hmm. uh, where she's like, uh, the, her shoes are squishing and the, the, her, like her booze is, uh, you know, rocking on her, on her side. Uh, so good. Um, but then also the voice of uh, Taste the Rainbow. That's her uh, as well. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Good call. I, I think she- She was also the face of a, she was the face of a like AIDS awareness campaign as well, mother. Mm. Mm. So then, you know, her, this whole portion where she's like, now hold, hold on, on to yourselves. yourselves. 
there's one more thing. A terrible presence is in there with her. So much rage, so much betrayal. I've never sensed anything like it. <laughs> it lies to her. <laughs> to her, it is simply another child. It's the beast. It's the beast. And the music swells and it's like so intense. And then she's like, now let's go get your daughter. She's kind of like a short Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> Right? Like, she's kind of got, like, the sort of, like, the breathy, weird kind of reading, of, like, line <laughs> yeah. reading of a Jennifer Coolidge, but, like, you know, um, maybe more ethereal. Have you guys seen the movie Rolling Thunder? Uh, no. No. So, it's, like, one of the, like, it's, like, one of the ultimate kind of, like, revenge, you know, badass sort of, you know, early 80s action movies, and Tommy Lee Jones is in it. And um, the the main character, the actor's name is William something, I forget. But anyway, he this like horrible shit happened and he goes to his old war buddy, hot young Tommy Lee Jones and tells him like what happened. And Tommy Lee Jones just listens. He's like at dinner with his family and he just stands and says, let's go clean him up. And there's something about that line delivery that like sets me on fire every time. And uh, that's exactly what, well, let's go get your daughter does to me. It's the same sort of wow. like, okay, well, uh, enough with the bullshit. It is, let's go clean him up. Ugh, I love it. So yeah, it's Will William Devane. Love that guy, William Devane. Um, Thank you. Did, yes, did uh, yeah, and and Tommy Lee. Uh, did uh, did Quentin like distribute Rolling Thunder? I feel like he when he went out and he did like Chunking Express and like a yeah, it was like a huge Tarantino influence, and then he ended up like I saw it in a Tarantino like hosted programming series at the Alamo. Nice, nice. That's a good flex. I like it. So as a kid, this idea of the rescue with the rope and the tennis balls and the hat bathwater and all that stuff. Um, and it's just like, it's amping up when they open up the door and they're there and just, um, Tangina says to her, Let me go! You've never done this before! Neither have you! You're right, you go! That shit is hilarious. I know, there's a tiny bit, like, of humor. Yeah. <laughs> there's just, like, a tiny bit of humor still at the end there where it's like, she, like, everything is so serious, but she's like, you know what, yeah, you go on ahead. <laughs> But that last kiss as the music swells with Diane and Steven is so incredible. Um, and it's so just the power in that moment. And, you know, don't let me go. Uh, and I love you. And then that's where she starts in with Tangina with crossover children. All are welcome. Go into the light. And now it does look like she kind of gets on her own program at this point, right? Like I, as Craig T. Nelson, I would also just be like, whose side are you on? Like you seem to have just like taken like you, if you're going to do that, if you're like the primary, like, you know, interventionist in this whole scenario and you're, you know, that at some point you're just going to start talking to the spirits and leading them into the other world. You need to prep people that that's coming. Like when they think uh -huh. they're just getting their daughter out, when they're in it, just to get their daughter out, you need to let them know that all are welcome. Step into the light is like, you know, is coming. You need to know that that's <laughs> coming first. Yeah. The sequencing is very important. And then he is pulling the rope and then he gets the giant skull, um, so which is a great effect um, and is scary. But then as they are pulling the rope down below and you see uh, Diane and Carol Ann breaking through the barrier and then coming down and the shot of them hitting the ground and the thud that that makes is so fucking awesome. Yeah. 
It's brutal. Brutal. Yeah, really, really good. Um, so this is just sheer magic. And them covered in goop and Steven yelling at everyone to stay away from them. And then I don't understand up. the bathtub in this whole situation. I, I like, I don't, I don't, it's not clear I that think, like the bathtub is actually a good way of solving whatever is going on with them. Yeah. I like to think just that it's really warm. just like Tangina was like, they're going to be gross. So <laughs> have a bath waiting. <laughs> it's going to be so gross. <laughs> but I mean, like if you, like just clean them up, clean them yeah, up really but like, fast. You know, just like, just like do it like a newborn, right? Like, you know, just get a bunch of towels, like wipe them off, have like the bulb syringe so that you can clear out their airways. And if that doesn't work, you know, give them a slap on the butt or something, you know, like whatever. And like, get them under the, get them under the warm lights. Like don't, you don't put them in a tub at that point. You don't, you don't introduce the tub at that point in the birth. I was okay with it. And I think the scene is like, very intentionally supposed to be a birth. Yes. Like it feels real birthy, mm -hmm. like every part of it. So you make a good point. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I thought that was really beautiful. I love Dr. Lesh closes the door so they can have privacy. And then Tangina says, This house is clean. Hmm. This house is clean. Now, this is the most problematic line in the movie because it <laughs> turns out like it's a, it's a, it's a famous line. The, the, you know, it's well delivered. I like how she sort of like fixes her hair to turn to the camera that the assistant yeah. is holding to like yeah. deliver it. Like she knows this is like, she's like done this thing and it's going to be part of the movie or whatever that he's filming. And, you know, she delivers a line. It's great. Turns out the house is dirty as shit. The house is not clean and she <laughs> didn't do shit yet. Yeah, I think. Okay. So I. Two things about that one, uh, I have never once deep cleaned a house without ending with the phrase, this house is clean. That's uh, like my own ritual every yeah. time I like spring clean my house. But two, I think you're totally right. I think the fact where she does fix her hair and turns to the camera a little bit, like I don't think we're supposed to believe that Tangina is like infallible. I think that the movie presents her a little bit as a showboat. She's like pretty good at her job and, um, you know, ends up kind of essentially being the person that solve like helps this family through three films. But I do think that she is a little bit like high on her own supply in a way that the movie is very like, like clear. Yeah. Enough, I'm a little, know? I'm a little triggered to me. It's like a remodel, you know, the scope gets bigger. So we just finished, <laughs> we just finished the remodel at our house recently. And then we got tested for mold and just discovered that there's some mold in our house. So now oh. it's like, oh. so we went from this house is clean Bummer. to uh, this house has mold. It may collapse in, uh, you know, into another dimension, but mm. um, yeah, definitely not clean. That <laughs> is for sure. So we have this great smash cut to them packing up, and so this to me is my favorite line of the film, um, where Dana asks, uh, you know, are they going to be staying there tonight? Because Dad wants us to stay at the Holiday Inn oh, on I seventy four. Oh yeah, I remember this. You what? What? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, <laughs> that is an amazing little bit of character development in one and a half seconds. Well, she shows up with a hickey too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the movie, Dana, Dana shows up with a, the, the daughter shows up with a hickey at the end of the movie. So there's a few little hints of what's going on sort of outside of the house. I have never noticed the hickey. Oh, the That's hickey's dead. real. When she gets, when she gets dropped off, like right as, right as they're pulling out, she like just stand, she shows up and she just screams at the house. She's got a huge hickey right on her neck. Um, ah, but, I can't believe I've never noticed that. Yeah, That's yeah, really yeah. good. 
I like this because uh, a big thing for me with haunted house movies is like, I love finding out the way the story makes it that the characters can't leave for, for whatever reason. And obviously for most of the movie, it's that Carol Ann is still in the house, so they can't right. leave their daughter, you know? Uh, and so, and I also think it's really interesting that this movie's like broken up into these like acts, you know? And so uh, it's all takes place pretty much in one location, which could get kind of tedious, but they have, you know, the sort of opening and then they have the stuff with Dr. Lush and her, uh, you know, and Marty and the other guy. And then Dr. Lush leaves, but she's like, I'll be, I will be back and I'll bring help. And I love yeah. that. And then there's the Tangina kind of climax, but you're still not over. And so otherwise, like the fact that it all takes place in the house could get kind of boring, but they break yeah. it up with these huge, like super different plot points that I think are, is really clever. And so they're about to leave and everyone is relaxing, but the house is mm. not done. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one, right? Like time for a nice relaxing bath. Um, and I think what, what year was Friday the 13th part one, the original Friday the 13th? Eight, I believe yeah, that's 1980. Let me see here. That was the first film that I remember seeing that had like this really intense, yeah, 1980. you know, last gasp thing happen, mm-hmm. uh, where it suddenly became the thing that every film had to have, um, yeah. And so mm-hmm. certainly you could imagine looking at it that, that, that you can tell we're not quite done here. Uh, yeah. But, but my first question is how in the hell is the clown still here? Definitely don't keep the clown around at that point. You got to get all new toys in general. No, that <laughs> right. guy's got to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, are you guys planning to move him? Like, no, Burn don't, don't toy. move him. Just leave him. Yeah. Uh, the Diane rolling around scene, <laughs> um, you know, obviously there's some violation that is threatened there that that's powerful. Um, but then also just the technical aspects of her in a giant rolling room set um, that would later, you know, be done in tenant um, uh, to a, an nth degree, just just really, really effectively done. Yeah, stationary ca- uh, camera rotating room. Always um, good. So Always good. good. So so good. Also, fun trivia bit, I, I was rereading the um, Fangoria issue 19 cover story about, um, it came out in wow. 1982 about Poltergeist. And in every photo that Joe Beth Williams is and they captioned it, uh, Dominic Dunn. <laughs> Drove me crazy as an as editor of Fangoria. I'm like, that's not Dominic Dunn, that's Joe Beth Williams. But um, while the, you know, the sort of like sex, like ghostly sexual assault stuff is really upsetting. There is a moment like where she's, you know, she's like taking off her pants and just has like her, her shirt and her underwear mm. that reminds me so much of Ripley at the end of Alien oh, yeah. uh, and with the Alien poster. I feel like it's a little bit intentional where it's right. like everyone else thinks that this problem has been solved and the only person who's left to deal with it is, is sort of the sort of like matriarch of this like, you know, of the story and, and you know. Anyway, obviously it's also just because like Joe Beth Williams looks amazing and just like a shirt and panties. But uh, I do think there's like a you know a nod right. there. No, no, I definitely I felt a lot of DNA there back and forth with the especially with the score. There are many elements of it that that have <laughs> a lot in common um, with what Jerry Goldsmith was doing in Alien. Um, but so then they go ahead and dump Joe Beth. I mean, she's just taking punishment. She's getting blasted. She's getting shocked. She gets dumped into a pool with a bunch of live of real live skeletons. Um, mm-hmm. Those were not, uh, you know, fabricated. Those were actual skeletons that were then covered with muck and gross stuff and 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 marked up. Why did they get actual skeletons? Okay, so first of all, Joe Beth Williams did not know and and found out later and was oh, no. not happy about it. But th- this is the this is probably a good 
place to talk about the so-called poltergeist curse, um, which is the that Heather O'Rourke uh, during post-production on Poltergeist 3 uh, died of a, an obstruction in her intestines that was misdiagnosed as oh. Crohn's disease and it exploded and she got like toxic shock. Really sad. Dominique Dunn, who plays Dana, murdered. was yeah. uh, strangled by her boyfriend. Uh, yeah, murdered by her boyfriend after the filming of Poltergeist 1 um, and died in a coma like four days later. And then there's like the, the other ones that are sort of attached to the so-called curse are like, you know, the the character who plays Reverend Kane, who in Poltergeist 2 and 3 is the sort of human manifestation of the beast that you meet in Poltergeist 1. Uh, that actor, Julian yep. Beck. He was like 90 and he died of stomach cancer. Mm. Like, fair enough, you know. Um, okay. And then Will Sampson, <laughs> who plays run. the shaman and the Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know. Um, Will Sampson, who plays the shaman in Poltergeist 2, died of cancer. I mean, there's like, you know, if you if this is a three-movie franchise spanning years, and then also people are attaching deaths that happened in like 2009 to this. So right. the guy who actually drinks the coffee through the window, Bruta, um, you know? he, he was murdered in 2009, okay. and people are like, Bluto, um, uh, Oh gosh, I can't think of the actor's name. Um, but anyway, it's like how how long are we gonna like attach deaths? Like people are just gonna die. Like this this movie came out, yeah, decades people ago. People do die, yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so there's a series on Shutter that I, a documentary series that I really recommend if you guys haven't seen called Cursed Films by mm-hmm. Jay Chill. And it really talks about it's this like magical thinking where people just want to have a sort of like overarching reason behind random human tragedy. Mm-hmm. But um, and so it it speaks a lot to what, what I'm about to say, but the whole idea is that Poltergeist was cursed because they did use real skeletons, which is like this like perfect sort of meta way of thinking of it, because that's the reason the house is supposedly cursed in the story. And then they used, you know, real skeletons in the movie. But it's like the um, the special effects guy who Craig Reardon uh, has has gone on the record saying like, Every movie used real skeletons at that time. Mm. It was so much cheaper to get real skeletons from like an, an anatomy store than to um, craft right. like realistic. Yeah, exactly. So this is true of tons and tons of productions. It just came out with Poltergeist and became this thing. Oh. So I think that's really interesting and like pretty sad that, you know, uh, it's still the story like these two like mythologies surround this movie with like, oh, Spielberg really directed it and there's a Poltergeist curse. And both of them are just kind of like they don't really amount to much when you kind of put like a close eye to them. But in this case, especially, it's just like you want to believe there's a reason that this like beautiful little girl died so young. But it's just, you know, it was she was a misdiagnosis, you know. That's Mm. really interesting. Uh, I didn't that's that's great perspective. I like it's kind of weird that one point in time it was like it really was like you need a skeleton. I can get you a skeleton by 3 p.m. Like, and like someone was like, you know, there was exactly. like, why would you make a skeleton? Yeah, uh, that is wild. Yeah, I was wondering about if that was on there. The boys over at 70 millimeter were talking about uh, cursed last week uh, on their episode. Uh, Dirty Dancing, which people should check out. Very good. And um, but yeah, oh. I, I really was thinking that that this movie would be the perfect example to, to cover for that. Um, so she makes it out of the pool. And now we have one of my favorite, just the sound effect and the music of the hallway shot. Um, 
as it just stretches to infinity oh, and she's running yeah. and getting further away and it's like perfectly encapsulating that idea of what it's like to be in a dream and to be caught there and the bedroom and everybody flying uh and you know the hell mouth which was a full-size hell mouth practical effect that was created by uh by ilm just all of that uh is so great um and then we have steven outside with his boss mm-hmm yeah, the boss needs to be told what's up at this point. You son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the you bodies. You son of a bitch, you just moved the headstones. Why? <laughs> you didn't move the bodies. What's the thing you say, Jason, with the mustard and the Yeah, hot a little dog? too much mustard on the hot dog in this one. They really Are you serious? They, they, what? they emptied the tube. No, I love it. Oh, yeah. I think... 100%. I think perfect amount of mustard yeah. on this hot dog. I love it so well, much. Well, they, maybe they use you more mustard in the headstones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they absolutely do. Yeah. They really do. A little more, a little more on the Your tolerance for mustard is through the roof right now. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I... Sky high. The, yeah. the other thing I love here is, is like 38 seconds of Steven trying to get his car keys. Yes. That stressed me out because have I Have you been there, Jason? That. Have you had that Yeah, no, like I, I, I always am, like, I can't get out of the house with the kids, uh, like when I'm not being chased by malevolent spirits. So that stressed me out. Like I would definitely be looking for my keys. Come on, always, Dad. These kids are always taking your keys and like hiding them and stuff. Like I had a fight with Griffin this morning because he like, Little he like took my keys and like, and hid them and stuff like that. Like I, I, I can't deal with that. Can't do it. <laughs> Jason breaks down. He's mm -mm. he's fetal. He's like, I'm not gonna make it. No. You guys leave. Um, <laughs> so he does get the car keys. We have Dana getting into the car. What's happening? Dana, get the car. Drive away. Daddy, drive away. Yeah. <laughs> That's when what she shows up with the hickey. <laughs> hickey rewatch yeah. the okay. rewatch that scene where she shows up. She's yeah. got a hickey on her neck. I'm going down. You can hear the hickey in the clip. That <laughs> yeah, she's exactly. Playing. Like it's definitely there. But um, so. <laughs> then driving away and all of the explosion, the implosion effect. So again, Richard Edlund, Star Wars, Ghostbusters, a bunch of other, uh, um, um, ah, Jesus. Um, Keep it together, Matt. Bruce Willis. Right, we're almost, we're almost Bruce Willis, die hard. Um, all right. So they, they had all of these uh, strings tied inside the house that they could pull and then yank it basically into a giant vacuum cleaner uh, that they constructed for that effect. It's just amazing. And the sound of it all happening is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And the people getting blasted onto the sidewalk. Um, but then we have the Holiday Inn. We have the marquee uh, uh, that says, Welcome Dr. Fantasy and Friends, which was a shout out to producer Frank Marshall's magician stage name that is mm. Kathleen Kennedy's uh, husband. Um, but I love this. They're so exhausted. They go into the hotel room he shoves the TV outside um, and then closes the door and we have credits. As one of my favorite last shots of any film ever, just the sort of like camera slowly panning back, the TV on the balcony and the marquee in the background. I love it so much. It's so good. It says so much. It's so clever. Mm -hmm. I love it that. It just keeps I love going. That last shot. Yeah. Right back yeah. and back and back. What a movie. Oh, so good. Film. Honestly, perfect. Anything we missed? Anything we missed, Meredith? 
I think I think we covered it. I I know I uh, had a lot to say. So thanks for your patience. Oh my God, that's what, that definitely why you were here. Uh, so then that brings us to who would Tilda Swinton play? Okay, mm. I thought about this a I lot. Thought about this, yeah. I think Doctor. Oh great, Mary's always prepared. <laughs> I feel like the the sort of go to answer and the first answer I was drawn to is Tangina, but I think I, I that's. Dr. Lush is like a sort of underrated character for me. She doesn't get a lot of like, no one really talks about her, but I think she's really, really interesting. And that dynamic with Diane is really good. And she's got this like really cool kind of androgynous. In fact, the character was written to be a a man. And so I just think Tilda would crush it. She'd crush it. It's a great call. Mm. It's a a great call. Um, I would go with Mr. Teague, the boss, Mm. because I think it would be interesting. Ah, I think she could do something fun with like, you know, like with like that you sold seventy million dollars of this. Like she would just be like a slightly more interesting nefarious presence. Um, Very so like similar that. to sort of like her Michael Clayton role. I could see her doing that as as Mr. Teague. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, I I cannot resist the the candy. I definitely want to see her as Tangina. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Fair. Don't jam, don't jam Tilda's frequencies. <laughs> You're jamming my frequencies. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's just very quickly. We have two uh, two letters to get to. Oh, and one special shout out. So first of all, um, Curly Alley has now in our Discord has now released her second fanfic of Dune. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one was Sayadina of Dune that takes place after Dune, but before uh, Messiah. And her new one is called Entrepanus of Dune. Mm-hmm. And the focus is on Irulan as she uses her newly inherited wealth to become a spice and media mogul. Cool. Yes. This is what I'm saying. People need to get in this Discord. We we watch movies in the chocolate. We got people sharing fan fiction. We got a whole Elden Ring strategy channel. Uh, it's a delight. Come join us. I got Dude, technical support it. from the Chuckle well, Hut today, let's... so that was very helpful. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we can do anything. <laughs> we can do it all. Oh, you know what that is. It's the Corey signal. Hi, Corey. Doompod. Hey, it's Corey, uh, Austin, <laughs> Texas. I'm calling. It's like 6.40 in the morning here in Austin on Monday. Uh, I think I heard on the Tombstone app that you guys are recording early, so I thought I'd better call before I walk into work. Uh, so just real quick. Uh, Meredith, hey, how you doing? It's great to have you back. Hey. You're going to have a lot of expert uh, knowledge <laughs> for Poltergeist. Super stoked on that. Uh, I love Poltergeist. It's right from, you know, my perfect age. I was a perfect age to see Poltergeist in the theater and then to watch it a billion times on cable. Um, I do have a question, not like a deep thought out, like Kev's question kind of thing, but my own kind of was just thinking about, is Zelda Rubenstein an actual little person or is she just a short person? And then the other thing is, how come there's not a lot of little people in movies anymore? Like, mm-hmm. it was like a heyday of little people movies, like, starring in or, it's, you know, helping out with being different characters that needed special effect costumes or just like, I mean, I know I mentioned this movie before. I do love Under the Rainbow with Jeff Chase and Carrie Fisher and a cast of so many little people. It is astounding. Like, all the big names are in there. Mm-hmm. All the big names for the little people. Anyway, um, yeah, I kind of miss seeing them in all the movies. What's going on with that? Maybe I'm not watching the right movies. Mm. Oh, well. 
That's it. Not a really great Kev's question, so it's a Corey question. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, also, uh, who would tell the foot and play? No way I'm replacing Zelda. No way I'm replacing Joe Best Williams. So it had to be that one lady with the red hair who's part of the investigative group. <laughs> Dr. Yeah, Dr. Lesh. Right Lesh. And anyway, I got to get to work. All right. Love you guys. Have a great episode. And I'll talk to you next week. Um, Corey. She was, she was 4'3", uh, which according to Wikipedia was due to a deficiency of the anterior pituitary gland. So it was a, a medically induced uh, shortness. So it wasn't dwarfism. It wasn't like an inherited trait, like dwarfism. Um, but she mm. was uh, an actual little person. And like, I think like we've talked about this before, like when we did Time Bandits. And I think basically... Like, like the little people acting community as a whole was at some point just like, you know, we don't want to just be always elves and exploited for being, you know, who we are and being put in movies. And I think that changed sort of the the type of casting um, that was done. In that totally. Movie. And um, I know that. Um, oh, I just lost the actor's name who's in Cyrano and um, Game of Thrones. Uh, Peter Dinklage. Peter Dinklage, Peter Dinklage um, has spoken yes. out a lot about that. He's a real activist yeah. about it, and like he's currently kind of campaigning against the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs movie. But I was going to say, Corey, if you have not seen Cyrano, it's wonderful, and he's amazing. He's a, a leading role. Mm -hmm. uh, Cyrano yeah. Jack is one of my favorite stories, and Roxanne is one of my favorite like movies of all time. And so, um, seeing the sort of like amazing. typically like the sort of physical thing that's going on with Cyrano is that he has uh, just like an exceptionally large, long nose. Um, I think it was really clever um, for uh, Wright, Joe Wright to um, cast uh, Peter Dinklage in that role, and he's amazing well. at it. So, if you're if you're looking for a Peter Dinklage role. Please, please watch Cyrano. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. And then also, obviously, Station Agent. When that came out, mm. that changed everything. Mm. Yeah, good call. Yeah, I, I, def I definitely want to check out uh, Cyrano. That, that sounds... Uh, I do want to see fun. Cyrano. It's so yeah. good. It's really good. So for our voicemail, second voicemail is from Kev. And he writes, can't wait for redacted. Um, perfect pick for episode 100. <laughs> So I had dropped into the Discord earlier today a screen cap that was with black bars um, so that people couldn't tell what movie it was. Both Kev and Corey um, discovered the or, or identified what film it mm. was. So we don't know whether we're actually going to get to do this movie for episode 100, but if we do, it's going to be fucking epic. Um, so here is Kev's voicemail. Good morning, Dune Pod. Kev here on a bright and sunny Monday morning here in New York City. So happy to have Dune Pod to listen to while I work from home. And I want to thank Meredith Borders for giving that to us. Uh, what a gift. Thanks. And what a great episode <laughs> it's going to be. You know, I hadn't seen Poltergeist until last week with the Dune Pod Chuckle Hut. And it was just a blast, you know. Uh, parodies have dulled the edge a bit for me. But that could be said about so many movies that you guys cover. Mm. Kev's question this week concerns... The big elephant in the room that no doubt has been talked about. Toby Hooper, the director of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, is credited as being director on the poster. However, anybody who's seen this movie knows that this movie is glowing, radiating with Amblin vibes. Right? Mm -hmm. And not to mention, depending on who you ask, Spielberg was in person directing the movie on set. And that's one of the great stories and urban legends of all time in, in film. So my question to you, what is your favorite urban legend behind the scenes of a movie? 
And just for H, no limit to this. If you've talked about it on Dune Pod, go for it. Thank you all so much. I can't wait to hear the show. Much, much, much love to everybody. Great question. Mm, God. Kev's really quest- good question. Kev's, Kev's questions is the best new development in this podcast <laughs> in some time. Once again, it's Kev's questions. <laughs> I got I got one. I okay, got one for go. this. Go for it. My favorite urban legend is that uh, Christian Slater lost his virginity during the love making scene in Name of the Rose. What? Uh, yeah, that's that one. That one has stood out to me um, for a long time, probably because like when I saw that movie as a pubescent lad, that was the hottest thing I'd ever <laughs> seen in my entire life. And so, uh, you know, it it felt true. Um, Who was yeah. it with? Uh, the lady who's a surf, <laughs> the lady okay. who's a, a you know a wretch, a poor wretch in medieval France. The surf, <laughs> the surf. She doesn't even I have a name. Th- That's the point of the movie. The name of the rose is the point of the movie. Okay, I have not seen that film, and so <gasps> I haven't either. Is that who is that? Yeah, is that Echo? Who is this? Yeah, Umberto Echo, yeah. Okay, yeah. I haven't read the book or, or seen the film, so. He didn't lose his virginity with Umberto Echo, to be clear. <laughs> okay, very That good. we know of. Not that there's you know, anything wrong with that. Yeah. Allegedly. Meredith, favorite urban legend. Okay, mine, mine is the supposed ghost in Three Men and a Baby. Are you, are you familiar with this? No, go uh, for it. What oh my this? God, it's... It's so dumb, but I, I really love it. Uh, if you're watching the spectacular film, <laughs> Three Men and a Baby, uh, at one point in the living room while the guys are just like sitting around, you know, talking, being charming gentlemen, there's a, a shape behind uh, a curtain in the living room that people thought was like a ghost, but it was just the director's like nephew like wandered in um, offset and hid behind <laughs> the curtain. <so>. <laughs> <laughs> This was like early internet for me. I was like, you know, oh my yeah, God, there's sure. a ghost in this. And then later when it was debunked, like somehow the debunking made it even more fun. I'm not sure why, but. Mm, that is hilarious. Uh, for me, mine was just that, um, was that Francis Ford Coppola had a complete meltdown um, in the midst of uh, making Apocalypse Now. And just that whole legend of that and how troubled that production was and how wild uh, things got, um, only to then all be found to have been true uh, via his wife's documentary, um, Heart of Darkness, uh, which I highly recommend if folks haven't seen. That is quite, quite amazing. All right. Well, those are our questions, uh, which just brings us quickly to next week on Dune Pod. Um, we are so lucky. We have last week we had uh, Ryan Condal, showrunner of House of the Dragon, and we are going back to the House of the Dragon team with the return of Greg Yatanis. Children of Dune, House of the Dragon. He directed not just episode two and three, he directed the finale. Um, so I cannot wait to hear uh, you know, what he's been getting up to with those dragons. But we are going for our second Coen Brothers movie, Jason, Raising Arizona. Yes. Beautiful. I fucking love this movie. <laughs> I do yeah. too. 
I love it so much. So um, I think it's a rental um, right now. I didn't find it available um, streaming, but folks should definitely buy it. Just if you don't own this movie, buy say, it. Buy it. Yeah, no doubt. No no doubt. Okay, Meredith, what do you have to plug? Uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Mayor Borders, and that's where I kind of update uh, what all my stuff's going. And also follow at Fangoria, where I am an editor. Awesome. Good to hear. Whatever happened with Starlog, the first time you came on, you said- They're uh, still trying, man. In. <laughs> They're still trying. Okay. <laughs> Very okay. small team over It's there. hard to get this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Jason, what do you have to plug, bud? Uh, Elon just bought Twitter. That news just uh, came out. Yeah. Uh, That's just, <laughs> just like literally broke during this, during it. the Q and A uh, time, which is like my phone, like my phone went nuts like 10 <laughs> minutes ago. And then I was just like ignoring it. And then crystal called twice. It wasn't about that. It was about something else, but I was like something <laughs> terrible must have fucking oh, happened. Oh no. Yeah. Um, it did. Cut the stream. Cut the stream. All right. We love It's been real everybody. Yeah, yeah, we had a good run. And that's it for this episode. I want to thank Jason and Meredith for a fantastic conversation, as always. Next week, we are thrilled to welcome back to the show the director of the sci-fi miniseries Children of Dune and HBO's upcoming Game of Thrones House of the Dragon, Greg Yatanis. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, and be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We also have an awesome Discord server where you can hang out with us whenever you want. The link is in the show notes. Dune Pod is a Tape Deck Podcast John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Transcripts provided by Sophie Shin. The episode was edited by Megan Hayward of Edit Audio and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We love you, and we'll see everybody next week. <laughs>